A little late start here. Here we go. June the 8th, 2014, lecture discussion number 157 on the book of Romans. Oh, that worries me. Is it really 157 or is it 158? I think I copied the same. I think sometimes I just copy it. I don't, I try to take it off and I don't add one. Now I'm worried. It's some lecture in the 150s today, but the, June the 8th, 2014. Okay, before uh, returning to Romans 9, which is the plan today, actually, uh, um, we're headed over towards uh, Moses and Joshua and Jacob trying to figure them out, which helps us in Romans 9. I had a bunch of stuff come flying uh, uh, through the uh, through my desk this week, and, and I thought it was pretty valuable to share it. Uh, uh, because it takes us back to Romans 1, 18 through 23. That is probably the most solemn, uh, powerful verses in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 23. So it's always difficult to get ever uh, get away from those verses, um, ever to leave them behind. And especially uh, uh, as we come, King George and I were talking before the sermon, just the changes that we're seeing in this country in this world, it's really speeding up to us. Maybe all of us that are our age or, or older are beginning to look at the, the world and um, see things that are just astonishing. I imagine that it uh, happened during the world wars as well, but I think the changes are faster than any time I have ever lived, technologically and politically, economically. It just is an interesting time to be here. We're not going to be bored. So I think we're coming to the end of the age of the Gentiles. And uh, and I used to call this segment a few years ago, things that I have learned from television or television media or media. And so I wanted to share some stuff. Uh, I get all these letters, as you know, and uh, some of them are very interesting. And um, this is uh, from a gentleman, um, Jim, Texas Jim. So I'll read a little bit of it. It's pretty lengthy, or not real lengthy, but I'll read just kind of cherry-pick my way through it. Pastor Steve, this is coming from my office rather than my personal email, but it's just me, Texas Jim. Uh, He's friends uh, with Mark uh, from Texas, so they know each other. All your lectures are great. No one applauded, Jim. Not a soul even looked up. All your lectures are great. Now, this is going to be very funny, at least to me and Jim. But your recent aside on physics is really cool. No one agrees with you, Jim. (laughs) He says, I have a background in physics, and he does. He's quite expert. Um, And his one of the things that he did is he had to derive E equals mc squared from Newton's formula for gravity. So Einstein's uh, mass energy equivalence formula there's a, deriv- a derivation, I can barely say the word. You derive it mathematically. And, and some think that, by the way, that Einstein did not, was not the first to do that. They think it was, in fact, uh, Newton considered mass and light in the 1730s in equivalence, as did Max Planck. But let me continue reading. It took him four hours to do it. Having said this, I now have doubts. Speaking of time, oh, I now have doubts, and it's about time. He has doubts about time. Speaking of time, I read Hawking's turtle book. It's ridiculous. So when you are somebody that can read Stephen Hawking and declare him to be ridiculous, you are a formidable man, and Jim is indeed. Surely he must be embarrassed, Jim writes. Doubts? 
Yes, E equals mc squared is a good approximation of how much energy is produced when matter is converted. But I don't believe we can use simple algebra on this formula because there are too many assumptions. We cannot measure time from our frame of reference. C, speed of light, is not a universal constant. Three, perhaps one equals two, I state that we cannot with any confidence solve for M or the components of C. In other words, it is a special circumstances formula. Ultimately, he, he tells us, uh, and this is something that uh, someday uh, we'll have to at least investigate a little bit, Einstein divided by zero. There is one thing we can say with certainty. If any physicist says something, it will later prove to be either partially wrong or completely wrong. Another thing, math is not physics. Math is simply a tool used to understand physics. Modern physicists are somewhat confused by this. I think space-time is math. The concept of space-time fits our observations only because we cannot see the whole picture. They cannot understand why C, or light plus velocity equals light, V equals K, and they cannot define time. So to answer these problems, they make up science fiction, beat their chests, and receive their grants. What he's describing is Romans 1, 18 through 23. We currently define the second against the meter and define the meter against the second. This is their science. We cannot independently define a second. They are using rubber rulers. And, and he goes on to say that nothing, there's all of this gravity and acceleration and there is nothing that can explain these issues. Here is my take on Einstein's defunct theory and why physicists refuse to consider that theory a theory. Theoretically, I say it would require acknowledgement of an unseen realm in which there might be God. And he goes on to say other things. He ends with this. I digress too much, methinks. My best regards, Jim from Texas. P.S. Only God can divide by zero. I wanted to read that to you for a number of reasons. One, um, we are at a time when something is going to happen very soon, and you can see it in the physics realm. That's why I keep bringing it up to you. I know it's difficult. I understand how difficult it is. Trust me. But the scientific community, is there's almost a panic going through them now. And I think that is an indication uh, of what the book of Revelation has told us. At the end of the age of the Gentiles, there, no one will worship. Uh, there will be no evolutionary monism. There will be no atheism. There will be the worship of the true God and the worship of the anti-God. That's all there will be. There will be worship. And you can see the physics community is beginning to rise up. That is a dramatic change since, golly, 1920 maybe. It's taken a hundred years, but they're starting to say, wait a minute. And Jim's letter is just more evidence of that. And I wanted to read his letters because, as I said last Sunday, during the post game, a few people came up to me. It's my intention to present Moshe Carmeli. There was a man who died in 2007. His name is Moshe Carmeli. He looked at the traditional astrophysics position on the expansion of the universe, especially the age of the universe, and he said, no, it's not true. Um, and no one has heard of him, except recently he's begun to show up again. 
And I think it's important for you to know what's happening as the scientists begin to go at war with themselves. You're going to see it come into the philosophy and the religious realm. It's going to happen. And it will be a dramatic event. Uh, so I'm going to bring up Carmeli a little bit. So uh, it's called uh, Carmelian cosmology, or some will call it CSR, uh, it, it, uh, cosmological special relativity. Just so that you can recognize it when you read the papers or watch TV. That's what I want you to do. And we're, we're going to do it, and I don't expect you to explain it to your children or, their, or your few remaining friends. Because uh, if you start talking about this stuff, no one wants to be around you. But I just want you to know that Carmeli was the Albert Einstein Professor of Theoretical Physics at Ben-Gurion University in Israel. So this is an Israelite, an Israeli, a brilliant man. And he was the president of the Israel Physics Society. So he is an accomplished physicist. No one to be taken lightly. A formidable adversary. As I said, he died in 2007. And he wrote a book. No one has read it. That doesn't surprise me. But uh, uh, I, you don't need to buy it. I'll buy it for you. you can, we can all try to read it together. But... I intend to integrate some of his theories in a few up, upcoming lectures, no more than five or ten minutes like today, uh, so you don't invite your neighbors. But anyway, just to make it really quick, Carmeli saw that the astrophysicists had come up with dark matter and dark energy, and he said, no, those are contrived inventions. They're not real. And they did it, he believed, uh, because they wanted to explain characteristics of the universe which did not conform to their vast age of the universe and their other theories. And so Carmelian general theory or model for the structure of the universe was to do one thing, and that is to add velocity. In essence, saying that the universe is expanding at an ever-increasing velocity. What I mean by that, the universe expansion is not constant. It's never been constant. It is instead accelerating. So if the universe is accelerating, then I can track it back. And if the universe is accelerating with respect to expansion, then time, therefore, is changing. It's relative. Time can, uh, then can only be measured relative to the portion, I'm sorry, the position of the measurer and the speed, the velocity of the one measuring the time. So, let me just give you a little quick. If the universe is expanding, and we all agree that it is, and if it is accelerating, so it is now moving faster. Now that it is right here at this point, it is moving faster in its expansion than it was here. If I'm trying to measure time, and I'm moving that way, for example, and I'm here, I have to know how fast I'm moving and where I am, and then where I'm looking and how fast that's moving. So time is relative if I have an acceleration with respect to expansion. Again, it can only be measured relative to the position of the measurer and the speed at which the measurer is traveling and the speed at which the universe matter is also accelerating. The velocity of the one measuring the time as well as their position in the expansion and the velocity of that expansion. And therefore, here is the nutshell, if you will. I, I don't 
don't plan on you understanding this immediately or maybe ever. But just know. Time, if we are accelerating right here, this is moving slower than this point. That means time is what here versus here. Time is slower here. When the acceleration of the expansion of the universe was slower, time, being relative, is also slower. What does that mean to you? That destroys evolutionary cosmology. Time must have moved much more slowly in the past when the universe was smaller and moving and expanding much slower. Right now, our galaxies are spread out, but that's because we're accelerating in expansion. If we go back in time, they were closer together, much closer together. Time was slower. That destroys evolutionary cosmology, if Carmeli is right. And if he is right, then there's a lot to discuss here, and we'll endeavor to try to get through it some. Okay? That's one thing that's happening. There's another thing that's happening. They say it wrong, but uh, they, a graveyard is discovered in southern Chile. Anybody read this? So it's pretty. They found fossils of ichthyosaurs. Okay? Let me read some of it here. Scientists working in the Patagonia region of southern Chile have unearthed what is being called one of the largest ichthyosaur graveyards to be found to date. Not necessarily dinosaurs. Ichthyosaurus uh, is a marine reptile. Uh, again, 245 million years old. But located in the country's Torres del Pane, I don't know how to pronounce that, National Park, the graveyard contains nearly 50 entire ichthyosaur fossils. The prehistoric creature has been described as a fast-swimming fish lizard. The ict, uh, ict, uh, fish lizard is ichthyosaur, that's what it means. Similar to the dolphin that lived during the Mesozoic era, about 245 million to 90 million years ago. That's how old they think it is. Why do they think that? Because they are measuring time based on an accelerating universe, but they don't know the universe is accelerating in time, or in speed, in expansion. One of those words is right. This great ichthyosaur cemetery, the way the remains are deposited, is unique, said Christian Salazar, paleontologist, researcher, and natural history museum curator, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The fossil remains containing both skeletons from embryos and adults and likely killed in a series of catastrophic mudslides. These fossils were preserved in deep-sea sediments, that were later exposed by the melting glacier. Yay for uh, melting glaciers. What else is underneath these melting glaciers, right? You live in a time when things are going to change. Amazingly, not only the bones have been preserved, but some of the soft tissue on a number of fossils. Uh-oh. Now, we'll have to find out whether or not there is fossilization, permineralization of these bones and soft tissues, but that's not what it's saying. 
The largest skeleton found measures up to 16 feet. So they are beginning to dig up fossils. And, and they're digging up soft tissues, remains. And they're digging up non-permineralized bones. And how interesting that we have all of that now. What's the first thing I want to do if I can find any soft tissue remnant? What do I want to do with it? I want to take it to a lab. What do I want to do in my lab now? I want to carbon date it. Carbon 14. I'm, I'm ready to go. What if I find out, and I'll, I'll concede your carbon dating, even though that, that system, I think, has many issues. Uh, but uh, I, I know they're never going to allow me into their labs to carbon date or anyone else of my ilk or my predisposition, because if you do, we're going to find out that these remains are not what? They're not 245 million years old. That, by the way, is an end times prophecy. That's what Christ said would happen. As you know, evolutionary dogma and philosophy is untouchable in our culture now. In the United States, it is untouchable. Nothing can be allowed to challenge the religion that is evolutionary monism. And besides, evolutionary theory is non-falsifiable. If you bring them something, they will just assimilate it and declare it to be proof of of their premise. There's nothing you can do that will affect the evolutionists yet. But I just wanted you to notice this. Again, we have found rapid burial resulting from a water flood event in concert with volcanic activity. That is a description of the Noadic flood. Pure and simple. And expect this to continue because God says something. At the end of the age, the rocks will cry out. Habakkuk 2.11 and Luke 19.40. At the end of the age the rocks are going to declare Jesus Christ to be God and Savior. The testimony of our Creator is not going to be extinguished and cannot be hidden, though uh, man will attempt to do so relentlessly um, and appear to be winning. We think these uh, evolutionary scientists are powerful. They are not. They are small and weak. Man is a vapor. We're just a speck. We don't have any power. All of mankind's attempts to deceive and to conceal and to counterfeit what God has put here, the truths of God, uh, will crash. They've always crashed and they will always crash because they're dust. Okay, the last thing that I thought you might be interested in is uh, on television. We had a prominent atheist and a prominent Christian leader. I don't want to name them anymore because I don't like to give any either side publicity. But you can figure it out. One of them has the prominent atheist has a cable program, and he invites the prominent Christian leader. And they have a discussion. And and the only, uh, what resulted can only be described as a dumpster fire. You see, I expect the evolutionary monists to spew their hopelessness and their despair. It's, It's hopelessness, purposelessness, despair, Doom, that's the foundation of evolutionary philosophy. And I expect atheists to have absolutely no understanding, nothing, zero, none, nothing of the Bible. They could not understand the Bible, no matter who explains it to them. I expect that. That's what the Bible says. If you understand the Bible at all, in any, in any small amount, that's a special spiritual 
significant thing that has been given to you. So the atheist I will never, he has zero, no, nothing, understanding of the Bible, especially the purpose of the Old Testament, which we're studying, and the meaning of the Old Testament. But I, I just really get disheartened when the Christian leaders show up. And they're also illiterate when it comes to the Old Testament and the Godhood of Christ. And you might remember Chronister's Law. What does Chronister's Law say? It says that if uh, you are invited to be on one of these kinds of uh, cable TV forums, then you have been selected because uh, the evolutionists think you're an idiot. And that's the way it is. So they go out and they get somebody they know is going to do a very poor job, and he never ceases to reach their expectations. Anyway, once again, as per usual, the Christian leader did not defend the deity of Jesus Christ. He allowed the evolutionists, the, the, the atheists, to repeat unchallenged his statements that separated Christ from God. One of them went like this. The atheist said, the Old Testament is, is horrible. It's wrong. It's bad. There's nothing good about it at all. God is capricious, evil, kills people on a whim. He has a stone's children. He, he's awful. God's terrible. And the Christian leader, and it went something like this. The Christian leader said this, I think. Well, Christ has come and changed the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that was the gist that I got. And the response back to him was, well, now you've got the son has to come and tell his dad that the dad's book is whack. That's pretty close to a direct quote. And that, and that of course, goes on challenge. And I don't even know how to respond. I just get, like I said, very frustrated. And um, I just want to scream, and I do. I scream, Christ is God the TV. Christ is God. He's always God. He's never not God. How hard is that to say? Why can't you say that? Why can't every Christian always say that? There is no distinction between the writer of the Old Testament, God, and Christ. They are the same person. God the Father, God the Son, sameness, oneness. Why won't somebody, anybody, say on these stupid shows, uh, God, Christ is God, never not God? It doesn't make sense and it doesn't happen. Why not have a triune nature of the Godhead discussion? They never do. Why not? Don't they know? Apparently they don't know. Chronister's Law, right? I'll say it again, the 10,000th time by now. The purpose of the Old Testament is to portray Jesus Christ, to testify of him, to explain how and why death and sin came into the world and infects the world, and how God then intends to restore our lives, and how God solves and provides himself as a solution to sin and death, and how and why God protects his gift, his plan of salvation. He's constantly protecting his salvation plan. All throughout the Bible. It's what he's doing in the Old Testament. Every time you see God intervene, it's because his plan of salvation is at stake. They say it is evil. The atheist commentators said it is evil for God to protect his salvation plan. How dare you kill somebody that's trying to destroy the plan of salvation? It's ultimately what their argument is. 
what I just, the aforementioned is, is the essence of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament teaches what uh, I just rattled off. Again, I have no expectation that an evolutionist could ever comprehend the meanings of the Old Testament. The typologies, the symbols, the portraits, the hidden things, the deep mysteries, certainly never will a monist find the testimonies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. If you can't, if you have a question as to whether or not somebody believes in the Bible or believes in Christ or is saved, ask him. Find me one typological example, one portrait of Christ in the Old Testament. Find me one. The monists, the atheists, will never find Christ. It, it is a supernatural event to watch them. You can explain it, won't matter. It's almost like it hits them in the face and bounces off. It's extraordinary. My question is, is why can't the Christians find them? By now, somebody should have been invited to what just by basic math. You would think the guy they selected to come on and, and be destroyed by them would have got sick and his replacement would come up and, and they would be shocked to find somebody biologically literate. But n no, they never find anyone that talks about the typological element in the Old Testament, the picture of Christ that is there. Not one. Chronister's law remains inviolate. Okay, enough of my ranting. Where are we? We are leaving the two sons. The first son and the second son. That's what we've been doing the last few weeks. All of these things which are, I tried to bring up the first and the second son. And in that, uh, in that category, we had Cain and Abel. We covered them last week a little bit. We have Esau and Jacob. And we have the older son and the younger son of Luke. 15 through 11 through 32. Some would call that the prodigal son. That is a mistake, in my view, to call that the prodigal son. We have this first and second son, or older and younger son of Romans 9, this issue that's coming up as the first and second or older, younger. And these are three of the most prominent uh, examples of that theme, if you will. Cain, Abel, Esau, Jacob, older, younger son, Luke 15, 11 through 32. And all of those are connected um, in, intricately to themselves. The first son and the second son. Phrase it that way. That will help you recognize other elements that are present in this particular format that's so prominent in Scripture. And those are three cases of two sons that are intrinsically linked together, as I said. And it, when you study the three together, you're going to... Uh, when you get them simultaneous, you're going to find tremendous treasures there and wonderful insight. And that's where we've been. But i got one little thing to add on, one more element. In this format or this theme, in this pencil, or this dry erase marker, not working so good, so let's trade out. Inside of that, there's one characteristic that is the theme of those three examples of the first and second son, and that is murder, what's called the murder theme. 
murder is central to all three of those two son passages. Cain, in fact, was successful, wasn't he? He, in fact, murdered Abel. Esau planned to murder Jacob. He wanted to murder Jacob. And the older brother of Luke 15, uh, the older son of Luke 15, he not only murders his brother, but he also murders his father. That, by the way, is unsaid, but it clearly is inferred in the conclusion of Luke 15, 11 through 32. Christ, thank you, Christ, God himself, right? Christ, God himself, knew when he's giving this parable to the Pharisees that they knew what he was talking about, and they knew that he knew that they knew what he was talking about. Obviously, he knew because he's God. God himself, he knew the murderous intentions of the Pharisees while he is telling them the parable, and they likewise knew that the older son represented them in the very parable that he's saying. So he is giving them a parable, and while he is giving them the parable, the parable is happening. Now, who does that? Who tells a story that while he's telling the story, the story is happening? God does it all the time. He gives you the parable of the sower. While he is telling you the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower is occurring simultaneously. He's really good at these kinds of things. It's almost like he's the creator of time or something. Why can't somebody do that on one show, just one time? Then I'll quit complaining. So those three... uh, Stories, for lack of a better term, real, actual things. Because this one, even this one, is real and actual because the Pharisees are here. But these three actual events, all of them are literally, actually true. They all happen exactly as the Bible says they happen. At the same time, they're very typological and representative. Now, I don't want to neglect that Satan, he's the what when he first starts out before he falls? He's the king of the mineral Eden. You would call him the first king. God called him the anointed cherubim. What does God call the angelic host, by the way? Calls them the sons of God. So Satan is the first king, for lack of a better term, or the first son, see what I've done to you, of the Garden of Eden. Who is the second son? Adam. Now we no longer have a mineral Eden, but we have an organic Eden. Now, what is the, the, this son tries to kill that son. Cain does kill Abel. Esau wants to kill Jacob. This son, the older, does kill the younger. What does Satan, the king of Eden, want to do to the second king of Eden? Well, obviously, all you have to do is read the story. Again, it's Satan, it's not to be neglected that Satan could easily be given the first son title. It's the first king of Eden. And Satan is also called by God himself, John 8.44. Notice I keep saying God himself, because that's how I'm ranting today. Satan is designated a murderer from the beginning. So, I have this murder theme 
in all three of these, I have a murder theme between the first king of Eden and the second king of Eden right off the bat in Genesis. And Satan certainly attempted to murder the second king of Eden. Did he succeed? No, he did not succeed. So I find that interesting. He failed. Satan failed to murder Adam. And that means that we have to have an important discussion. We have to define murder as God defines murder. Not how you might define it, but how God defines it. God says that Satan is a murderer from the beginning. How so? What does murder mean to God? I think it is the second death, Revelation 20.14. Anyway, just for today, consider Satan and Adam alongside with these other sets of first and second sons uh, while we move along here today to Joshua, uh, Moses, and Jacob. Uh, Remember, the way we get these three together now, and I recognize that we're transitioning a little bit, and so I'm covering stuff that we've covered in the past few weeks. Well, I'm trying to give you the stuff that we're covering in the next few weeks. Jacob does something very significant with uh, the angel of the Lord, God. Let me put that up here. The angel of the Lord, God. Who is the angel of the Lord, God? That is Jesus Christ himself. And Jacob does something very significant. He holds on to him. Some will say contend. Some will say wrestles. But there's no question that he holds on to him. In fact, he is called the heel holder. And he holds on to him all night long. And for that, his name is changed to Struggler. With God, or struggles with God, because he is struggling with God. Does that make sense? That was kind of a joke. Maybe somebody will get it on the internet. He is called struggles with God because he struggles with God all night. So what's that tell you? Who was he struggling with? God. Who is God? God, in this case, is the angel of the Lord God. And who is the angel of the Lord God? That's Jesus Christ himself. So, so Jacob wrestles and he holds on to Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the triune Godhead. By the way, can I call the Father the first person of the triune Godhead? Do most people do that? Most theological people? Yes, they do. Is Does the first person have... Um, What's the word I want? Does he have rank over the second person? Is he in authority over the second person? Who is more important? God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit? Which one has the highest, most, most bars on his sleeves, if you will, has the nicest uniform, the best condo? I hope the ridiculous question gets you to the right answer. Most people will say that the Father is the first person, and that's certainly nothing wrong with that. But you should acknowledge when you say that, as long as you know that there's sameness, that there's oneness, the Lord God, the angel of the Lord God, and the Spirit of the Lord God are all the Lord God. 
Three persons, one God. The Gentiles, we all say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that confuses people. That's what frustrates me. There's nothing wrong with saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we have overwhelmingly the vast number of Christendom thinks that the Son is inferior to the Father. I've lost congregates over that, as you know. There is no inferiority in the Godhead. Don't allow someone to do it. That's what I'm talking about with this talk show guy. He comes on there and says the son has to go tell his daddy that the book that his daddy wrote was whack. Well, that's so, and for the Christian to sit there and listen, I'm digressing again. Happening again, more soda. To listen to a statement like that is, is indefensible without responding, without challenging it. But it's been beaten into us that there is an inferiority or a rank in the Godhead. Who has done it to us? Ourselves. I go to 99% of the churches and hear a prayer that starts out like, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your inferior Son, Jesus Christ, who cried all his way up to the cross and weep for himself and Wished he could get out of it. and But you gave him the strength. Uh, I can find that in every church that I go into without any difficulty. And that's a shame. But never let go of the truth of the triune Godhead. Never, ever. Now, notice the Lord God, as an aside, is pleased to bruise the angel of the Lord. Now. I have the Lord God, go back to your sons again, the Lord God and the angel of the Lord God, same person, oneness. The Lord God is pleased, Isaiah 53, what is it, 10, let me double check because I don't want to mess that up. Isaiah 53:10 is pleased to bruise. Our wound. The angel of the Lord God. What does that mean when it's in the triune Godhead context? That's what I want you to recognize when you read those kinds of verses, especially that one. So let's move along. Jacob holds on to the angel of the Lord God, which is Jesus God. Acts uh, 2.32. You'll have, if you read your Bibles, you'll have uh, commas in there and you'll have... um, Half, but the Acts 2.32 says, this Jesus God raised up. There is no comma between Jesus and God. Read it fast. Read it this way. This Jesus God. It's like a hyphen, if you will. Some of your Bibles will have a hyphen. This Jesus God raised up. Does that make sense? In other words, it's one person, one name. Jesus God. Think of it as a one name. Jesus God raised up. Who raised Jesus God up? Jesus God raised himself up. So this person named Jesus God raised himself up. That's Acts 2.32. So start understanding Jesus God. Jacob holds on to Jesus God and is wounded. Moses is confronted by the angel of the Lord God, Jesus God, over circumcision. And Joshua is also blocked by the angel of the Lord God, Jesus God. So we've got to compare those three now. We've got to go and find out. 
what it is that all of that means as best we can. So now we can start the sermon. I'm kidding. We're almost done. We've got to make a list. So let's go to Joshua. I know you love lists. Let's go to Joshua. Read Joshua. And see what this actually means. Joshua 5.13 And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted... So where is he? He's by Jericho. What's he about to do at Jericho? Blow the place up. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold. Let me do it better. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked. Behold! What that means? Something is really going to happen now. All you got to do is watch. Something's going to happen. A man stood opposite him. Something amazing is going on now with sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. I love that. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. I usually say yes to those kinds of questions. And Lori will say, Do you want Kentucky Fried Chicken or Cake? Yes. Makes perfect sense. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay? So let's make our list really fast. We are at Jericho. Why is Jericho so important? And Joshua, who is really, if I say Joshua correctly, what is it? It's a derivative, if not exactly the same as the name Yeshua. It means salvation. So I have salvation talking to salvation coming up here. So Yeshua lifted up his eyes, lifted up his eyes. So By the way, what is Joshua doing over here? He is the commander of the Israeli military. He is what? What's it imply in the text? He's alone. That's interesting. Then we have this amazing behold that you really have to teach yourself to stop and watch what comes next immediately. A man. Or what I like to say, Jesus God. And Jesus God has his sword drawn. What does that mean? Is that good? What did Joshua think? Have you come to kill me? Or have you come to kill our adversaries? It go either way. Why in the world would Joshua think that God has come to kill Joshua? Notice that it says Joshua went 
to him. Are you there for us, our enemies? And then this amazing answer. No. I am the commander. Of the army of the Lord. Who is the army of the Lord? Who is the commander of the army of the Lord? And he says, I have now come. What's the obvious question? Why now? What happened just before this? What's going to happen after? So I have the situation where something has happened. Okay? Call that step one. And step two is about to happen. And Christ comes in the middle. It's very similar to Melchizedek. Christ has a habit of doing this a lot. It's exactly what happened with Moses and Zipporah. As Moses leaves to go to Egypt, bang, Christ comes right in the middle. After he left, before he gets to Egypt, he comes. What happened before, do you know, do you know, you know, before they're going to take Jericho? What does the entire nation of Israel do? Do you remember? They get circumcised. Absolutely right. Circumcision. Which I always say whenever you read the word circumcision, think crucifixion of Christ, because it is a symbol for the crucifixion of Christ, or the blood sacrifice of Christ. So for the first time in the history of the nation of Israel, circumcision occurs as God commands. Then Joshua is alone, preparing to to destroy Jericho, and Christ comes. Jesus God comes, sword drawn. You come for me or or my enemies? No. And Joshua fell, and he worshipped. Who's he worshipping? Well, you only worship one person. If you are worshipping somebody else, you're not worshipping. If the Bible says you're worshipping, then you're worshipping. So, when he worshipped, he's worshipping God. So, the commander is clearly God. And he's clearly the angel of the Lord, God, and that makes him Jesus Christ. So not only do I have Jacob now having this interaction with the Lord God, I have Joshua. Same thing. And what does God say? He asks him, Joshua says, what does my God say? My God say, So he's calling him my God. And what does my God say to Joshua? Take your sandal off. 
Really? You've come here with a sword drawn. I don't know if you're going to kill me or you're going to kill my enemies. I find out you're God, and you're, I need to know what you want. What do you want? Take your sandal off. By the way, who else is told to take their sandal off? Moses at the burning bush. Take your sandal off. Why? Because this place is holy. Holy place. And then it says, Joshua did it. Okay, there's your list. So let's recap. Joshua is alone and the God-man, Jesus God, comes. Remember again, likewise, Jacob was alone when the God-man, Jesus God, came. And Joshua has come to Jericho after this covenant obedience to be circumcised. The first generation of Israel was not, let me say that really good. I have how many generations of Israel up to this point? I have two. I have the older generation and now I have... The younger generation. What an interesting way to put it. What does God call the nation of Israel? He calls them his what? Son. Firstborn son. So I have the firstborn son, and now I have what? The second generation. So that if you want, I can say the first son and the second son. Here I go again, right? I have these first and second son things happening everywhere. It's a theme in Scripture. Start finding them. So you can understand what it means. So the second, the first son does not, the older son, if you will, does not get circumcised. Circumcised is a what? Is a picture of the sacrificial, the blood sacrifice, the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's interesting. But the second generation is all circumcised. Every one of them. They do exactly what God says, and now uh, Joshua is in front of Jericho alone, and he lifts up his eyes, and Christ has now come. Boom! Suddenness. At the same time, if we go back, not the same time, but uh, similarly, uh, Moses is headed to Egypt, and Moses' sons are not what? Circumcised, Christ comes and and has his sword, if you will, out. Um, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit, but he is going to kill Moses, who he has just said, go to Egypt and, re- and bring out the nation of Israel. And Zipporah immediately knows that that's happening because those two boys of Moses are not circumcised, and she circumcises them with a rock. So my question is, is how old are they? Not a good day for the son. So, put that together for today. Moses also at the burning bush. Remember, the burning bush does not devour the bush. So I have this burning, but I do not have any devouring of the bush. And Moses is told to take off his sandals, Exodus 3, 5. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. It's literally word for word of our list here on Joshua. 
And so the obvious question then becomes, why is this holy ground? Why did God choose this place? Or did he make it holy and it's happenstance? What do you think? Because if he comes there, it's going to be holy. Was it, is it a place that he knows about? Duh. He's omniscient God. What is the purpose of these places? What is the holiness element of it? Okay? Let's shut it down right there while the musicians start matriculating. Can we say matriculating? What I want you to do now is figure out why does he say no? Have you come for us or our enemies? No. What's that mean? He didn't come for them, and he didn't come for the enemies. So what's the obvious question? In other words, the question that Joshua asked him was what? Completely wrong. He didn't get any part of it right. Christ come, and he said, did you come for to kill me, or did you come to kill my enemies? No. Okay. Two are off the books. So why did Christ come at that particular time, at that particular place? In other words, he interrupts. He is praying, I believe. I'm going to make the case that there's a prayer event here. Joshua is, knows he's about to take on this fortress that is Jericho. He's going to lose a lot of men going up against it. That's what he's thinking. He's a traditional military man. He's got to deal with this. He needs to know how to approach this. I think he's asking for guidance. Christ comes right there with his sword drawn. Why is his sword drawn? Joshua naturally assumes you're going to kill me. No, I'm not. Oh, well, then you're going to kill my enemy. No, I'm not. So why is he there? What's it about? What's that? I heard it. Huh? Circumcision. It's about circumcision. Just like it is with Moses. There's your assignment. Figure that out. I'll see you next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.